Welcome to Singularity Watch, a show where we travel the world with you. I'm Kavya Perlman, founder of XRSI, the XR Safety Initiative and host of your show. Today, it's a bit of like playing at home, but at the same time, we'll immerse ourselves in quite uncharted territory at the core of VR cybersecurity. I really think that no one can be as good as Abraham Abe Bejili to pilot us into the exploration. But you must know that Abe has been the first person I spoke about my idea of creating XRSI, especially because it was, I was so inspired by some of his research. But we'll talk about that in a moment. For now, time to go. I know, Ollie, you're the one who always introduces our guests, but with Abe, I must say something. Um, <laughs> as you know, Abe is one of the original founders of XRSI. He's actually the person, uh, and I want this on record because I promised that to Abe a long, long time ago, who came up with X Reality Safety Initiative or XR Safety Initiative. Um, I still remember the day when I called him randomly just looking through his research, I picked up the phone number and I was like, hi, I'm Kavya Perlin. I would like to speak with Abraham Begili. <laughs> and off we went. Uh, Abe was gracious. He had just concluded this nominal research and he sort of sh- you know, gave me permission to talk about it. I remember I gave my first speech talking about all the cyber attacks that Abe's team had discovered and showcased his research at Augmented World Expo. And uh, just, you know, just amazed at all the work that Abe has done since then. So all I can say is welcome, Abe. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. And, uh, you know, it's good to see you virtually in this uh, world that we live in today. As many of you know, at the end of each episode, we ask our guests to give us his or her definition of singularity, their very own definition. Um, with Abe, just as we did in the uh, episode with Richard Foster Fletcher in episode 13, we definitely need to start from here. Um, and we know this might you know, fill the whole episode if we wanted. So Abe, what does singularity mean to you if you had to kind of define it with your own words? I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I wasn't really prepared for that question. <laughs> but uh, it, it, I guess uh, the thing about me is as a scientist, I understand that, you know, language uh, can change over time. So anything that we kind of call singularity now could actually change uh, as we move forward. Um, so f- from my perspective, uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about singularity is when AI maybe will surpass human intelligence and be able to self-replicate, create, uh, be more autonomous on its own and things like that. So I would say that that would be when when I think of singularity, that's what I think of. As I said before, um, you and your team in 2019 published the very first set of novel attacks that can be conducted in virtual reality or immersive technologies. Uh, We can detail them out uh, more. But first of all, what keeps these attacks together conceptually? So like, um, would you say it's the attack surface or something else? Is there a sort of a you know, fundamental thing that covers them and ties them together? Uh, like we have MITRE and OWASP stuff. Do you see this as a separate 
uh, thing or what keeps them together? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Kavya. I mean, when we did our attacks, we were, we, you know, the things that we published, we published a couple of different kinds of attacks. Right? We, we, we did this thing called the human joystick attack. And there's kind of a story behind that attack. We actually figured it out by mistake. So we were at, at a, at a, you know, we were at a conference and it was more of an artistic sort of VR conference where people were creating, um, you know, uh, VR systems, uh, you know, VR sort of environments. And my student was playing, or, you know, we put, we put students in this VR environment. We tried to like, you know, do the attacks. And what was interesting for us is, you know, he, he, you know, my student at the time, he went and he changed like a script to change the environment. And we noticed the girl stepped to the right. Um, and we kind of stumbled across this idea of like a human joystick attack where you can change the center of the virtual environment and move people around. So fundamentally, right, like when you when you talk about fundamentally, is this going to be kind of a new area? I definitely think it's going to be an amalgamation of existing and new types of things, right? Uh, I don't think it's, you know, so, so, so a lot of the attacks that we did were rooted in old exploits like you know uh, you know xss i mean it's a big one right so we we leverage xss to be able to get into into the systems but the impact might be different and it might be relevant i think this is the thing that we need to kind of realize is computers are computers code is code systems are systems programming is programming but now you're in virtual reality and maybe there's new types of attacks that could uh, be created with different types of impact um, and in order for us to give it the justice that it needs, right, so so that people can start looking at these things and looking at, you know, the, the different kind of uh, uh, technology-related uh, building solutions that exist, like Unity is just one example, right? Uh, we need to we need to maybe help define it as somewhat of a subdomain so that we give it more merit and we get people to start thinking about the problem because otherwise that's never going to happen, right? They're just people are just going to look at it as this. This 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 just thing that's that's the same as everything else, right? right. And I think that that's why uh, labeling it as such is quite an important and imperative way for for paving a path forward. You talk about in your research documents. You talk about uh, different uh, immersive attacks, uh, different categories rather of immersive attacks. And I've got a few here. So I've got chaperone, disorientation, human joystick, and overlay. So. Imagine like you had to explain this to the layman, which is in fact true because I'm kind of not uh, very expert on this type of stuff. So I'd like to know a bit more about, you know, to me and listeners, you know, or viewers, how, what that means in kind of uh, easy terms. So an overlay attack is nothing but putting something in your, in your VR glasses or AR glasses, right? We're just, we're, you know, I think of it as kind of the ransomware of your goggles. Like we can put things there and, you won't be able to get rid of them. I mean, how annoying would it be if you had to wake up in the morning and go to work and uh, and you have to, you know, design something in AR and VR and all of a sudden now you're just, you have this picture that says pay me or else I, I'm not here, I'm not going to go away. That's just one example of an overlay attack. I mean, the other way to use it, obviously, is if you really want to attack someone on a personal level, you start putting up pictures of their children, you know, on their, on their glasses yeah. and then... Yeah, think think of think of this, you know, psychological impact it might have on a person uh, in 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 that regard, right? So 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 that's one that that's what an overlay attack is. Uh, the chaperone attack is really quite simple as well. I mean, if you're if you understand VR, you know that typically there's an environment and there are detectors around so that you can you know uh, that can prevent you from hitting a real wall, right? 
Um, so what if we could change that in the environment and and take that away from you? And now you're immersed in you know some game uh, where you're like swinging your arm and jumping around, and all of a sudden you don't think you're close to the wall because there's no indication of that. And now you slam into the wall and hurt yourself physically. Right. Yeah. So now we're no longer talking about just mental harm. Now we're talking about physical harm, like being being able to physically harm someone. Uh, because of how the technology operates and because of the fact that when you're in VR, you're actually in physical space, right? And that would be that would be that kind of attack. Um, and then what was the other one? I forget. Now, now I'm losing my mind. And human joystick and disorientation. Yeah, so so human joystick is when you move someone from one point to, to from one point to another point without their knowledge or consent, right? So right. imagine playing a game in VR and all of a sudden uh, we start moving the center of the room virtually, and you will, as a human being, you will compensate for that. Um, mm. Right. And 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 all of a sudden, now you go into, you know, you start compensating for it, and mo- we move you into the direction that we'd like to move you to. And from my perspective, that's really interesting because, I mean, this is worst case scenario, right? <laughs> like, imagine you want to snipe, imagine you want to snipe someone from the window. Now you can get them closer. <laughs> yeah, you can get them closer to the window and then snipe them, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and, and disorientation is, you know, if you've ever played with virtual reality, you know that it could get you sick if you stay in it quite a bit of time. And what if we could, like, make the room just, you know, make you feel really sick and, uh, and, and, and you know, sick to your stomach, which we can, by the way, because if you start moving around all, all of the information you know in terms of the axis uh, the axes that you're looking at all of a sudden you'll feel really disoriented and sick um so those are the kind of different kinds of attacks and i always tell you know i you know, i have a lot of friends and i was like look if, if your husband plays a lot of vr and a lot of gaming um and you want to get rid of your husband it's the perfect time to do it right because you have the virtual reality headset on they can't see anything a lot of times they have headphones on and you know just strike them across the head and, <laughs> and end it <laughs> do not do this at home <laughs> these are AIDS research ideas yeah and by the way if that ever happens separation. I never want to get called in for investigative leads or that uh, disorientation one was particularly interesting because I, I was kind of picturing this scene in the future maybe when some you know big public figure is speaking in public in VR and they're attacked with something like that while they're doing a live speech. You know, it can be something quite powerful in terms of might, maybe not to actually hurt them but to sort of uh, create kind of, uh, you know, to mm, a blow to their reputation or something like that. And that, that could be pretty hefty like in a subtle way right yeah i mean i mean what if you could i mean if you combine all of these attacks together you can do some funky things right you can move someone to a to a staircase uh, without their knowledge while they have their vr headset on and then you could start disorienting them they'd fall down the staircase and you could just do a lot more things you could you could predict the exact location in the room that they're in because of the technology that's being used to track the people so there's a lot of uh combining things right this is the best kind of attacks are when you combine multiple vectors and you know that's just that's just how you know the that's how we, that's how the you know the bad actors think quick question to lighten everyone's heart a little bit well not really but uh, what's the scariest thing you've seen when you started analyzing privacy and security risks in xr um i mean that's a good question i think for me well 
for me, the scariest thing is that we're not giving it enough attention. But I think for me, the scariest thing is now that I have kids, um, you know, there's been times where I've logged into some of the VR applications and you can hear little kids talking and then you could also hear like adults talking to them. Um, I think that's really weird, right? And like, you know, basically you have a lot of people that might go into these sort of applications and start grooming kids and, 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 you know, it's just another new avenue for, for, for some of these people to do some negative things. And that's, that's the part that I'd like the least, to be honest with you, is, 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 you know, other than just the security aspect of, of course. Now, now, now the scariest thing that we did is uh, create from a technical perspective is we showed that we're able to create a, a self-replicating worm in a VR environment and be able to completely access the person's computer without without them having to do anything. Like the person would just have to use the VR application as it was intended. And then we would be able to uh, download malware onto their system, control their chats, change their profile, change their avatar, uh, and have complete access to them. And we could even stream their screen, uh, their computer screen live to our, to, you know, to our command and control server. Um, those are the things from a technical perspective that's really scary because because that's another thing. And then the other one is the man in the room attack. We showed like we're able to do this thing called the man in the room attack. Where right now, imagine having people in the room. Um, you know, I know there's some people in the room here that we you you can't see as as the audience, but it's the same idea as having a peeping tom, uh, you know, a peeping tom uh, in the room, and uh, and having that peeping tom be there without your knowledge and consent. So yeah. you might be in a VR environment on a date or with with someone trying to be intimate and all of a sudden there's a person right there and you have no idea that they're there. Uh, and it's just, you know, that idea kind of blows my mind. Yeah, that is very creepy because it feels so much more real, doesn't it? Than uh, just a vocal chat online. Uh, so, you know, the thought of somebody who's there, that spot there, you know, uh, very, very scary. But hey, um, have you it, seen any of these attacks in the wild? I mean, of course, besides the OWASP stuff that was potentially patched, besides the traditional vulnerabilities that you guys exploited, have you seen the novel sort of stuff going on in the wild? Or have you made observations otherwise besides research? Um, honestly, uh, it's hard to say, frankly, because you don't yeah. know if anyone has done it and it hasn't been caught. Um and then the other aspect of that is, you know, as a researcher, I always think about the f- things before they happen, right? So, mm. so those are kind of the main things that I kind of wanted to mention. Um, and and it, so I can't really, I can't really say is to be yeah. to, to be honest with you. That's kind of the challenge. I can't really tell you uh, if if anything's been in the wild. Now, definitely, grooming is happening in the wild, right? I mean, if you if you go into some of these VR environments, you can. You can kind of hear and see these things, so that's not yeah. that's that's something that does exist. Um, I will say that um, the other aspect of it. I mean, you mentioned big screen, but one of the major issues uh, was in the underlying technology that's being used by big screen, which is essentially Unity, um, which we told Unity about, and they called it the feature and not a bug in 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 their in their core code. So there's a, there's a function, you know, for you for all of you those programmers out there it's called open url and that function is being used uh, liberally let's say whenever uh unity coders are coding things and that function you typically pass it to url like you know a web url or something to open up a you know some sort of an http 
connection somewhere. Uh, but it turns out that you can pass it other things. You can pass it the parameter of opening your command prompt on your computer. You can pass it, uh, you know, a lot of other sort of uh, parameters, like download this file, open this file, open mm-hmm. this, this folder on your computer. So that, that that that's an issue as well. So so what I'm trying to say here is we, we don't only want to, you know, blame vendors, so to speak, but we also want to get down to the core programming issues in terms of the technologies and techniques that are being used, um, you know, uh, to, to, to hit these issues at a lower level. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I absolutely am with you. I am glad you mentioned the whole like grooming and that stuff because, uh, oftentimes when people talk about cybersecurity, they think about these cyber security specific risks, but then there are this reality risks that are also happening. Uh, but, you know, if when we discuss about these attacks and security, we have to reflect on the consequences. And within your research, I was really grateful you provided like risk categories and whatnot. Um, one is, you know, clearly health and safety that we have to worry about. But then the other one that you hinted at is privacy, the amount of data captured by these devices and the quality of data that we can actually now obtain is pretty impressive. Um, what tools do we have to manage this whole new level of reality capture from, you know, privacy, safety, cybersecurity perspective, uh, and also even forensics perspective, which you really care about as you have this, you know, UNSC grant that you manage and conduct these research. Well, thank you, Kavya. I mean, we were the first to actually publish papers on the forensic analysis of these systems. So the idea is with forensics is that it's about the extraction of digital evidence from systems and, and you know, things like, you know, when somebody opened an application, when somebody closed the application, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, like when, what the username is, who logged on at any given point in time, who communicated with who. So we need to figure these things out. And it turns out there's a lot of digital evidence we can extract from, from these things. Uh, in terms of privacy, um, you know, I, I think uh, what's really interesting is, you know, you asked what kind of tools. Well, first of all, there aren't many tools uh, that kind of focus specifically on VR and XR when it comes to these things. So let's just put that out there. Uh, I don't know of any tools that really focus on the privacy of XR uh, related uh, related uh, systems. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a company now doing it. Uh, but, but most of the tools I see are about like, let's collect more analytics using these things. And there's, Mm. there's less tools about let's manage the risk and manage the privacy. So it's kind of, it's in the opposite direction where most of the tools are, are really about, you know, decreasing your privacy as opposed to increasing your privacy. I would Mm. say, I don't know if that helped answer the question. Yeah. Well, yeah, we must investigate more and build Mm -hmm. more tools. Tools, techniques, um, and knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. You're the founder and executive director of the University of New Haven's Cyber Forensics Research and Education Group. Uh, in the last few years, we've become more and more familiar with the cyber forensics domain, right? So how do you plug XR into that discipline? So cyber forensics, again, is about the extraction of digital evidence. And really, it's about developing tools and techniques for the extraction of digital evidence from the system, from both memory, uh, disk, as well as network. So what data travels over the network? How can we figure out, you know, uh, what that data is and who's communicating with who? Those are the sort of things that we look at. So the interesting thing about my field is 
it's like I care about privacy, but to do forensics, sometimes you're like, man, I have to somewhat invade someone's privacy to figure out what's happened. And it's just uh, it's it's a kind of a, the, the kind of it's kind of an interesting situation to be in, uh, to be honest with you, because on one end, I care about privacy. On the other end, I care about finding who the bad person is. And mm-hmm. and it's just uh, it's a constant struggle for me to be in that situation and to find all that data. So. So, yes, I mean, I truly believe that there's a market for sort of XR uh, type forensic stuff. I think mm-hmm. the military just released their uh, their HoloLens XR stuff that they're starting to use and deploy. That's going to continue to increase over time. Um, so we have to really uh, we have to really explore these things more and see what we can do with them and develop tools that are sort of centric uh, to these environments and to these systems. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I wonder then about sometimes even real life uh, forensics or, you know, otherwise digital forensics. Could we actually somehow leverage XR spaces to do digital forensics? For instance, like reconstructing things or events that may have happened. Are we there yet where we are conducting simulation of simulation kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, there's so many. So, so, so when we talk about virtual reality in specific, the great thing about virtual reality is being able to spin up physical environments for cheap. I look at it as the next iteration of uh, virtualization. So, so for the longest period of time, we wanted to virtualize uh, computers. Now we have VMs, we have you know systems, clouds, all these things that are essentially virtualizing hardware for the end user, right? So if you want to if you want to spin up like a server, boom, click a button, spin up a server. Now have it configured using, you know, some technologies like Ansible and so on and so forth. The next iteration of that is how do we virtualize our actual meeting room or how do we virtualize a university campus? And this is why VR is kind of important because it decreases the cost and the barriers for people to be able to create these things. So, yes, I absolutely think it's a great uh, sort of way for you for the use of VR. I don't think the technology is fully mature yet to enable us to do to do it at scale and for it to be comfortable and all of these things, obviously. But we're, we're, we're getting there. Um, and we've already published a paper ourselves on the use of education, uh, use of virtual reality in digital forensics education. So we partnered up with uh, VR Immersive Education, which is a great company. If you guys are familiar with them, they're out of uh, Ireland. And we created an entire environment where you could learn digital forensics in virtual reality. Uh, where you would step in, you, you're an investigator, you're investing in a company called Big Thing, I think, Technologies. And actually, uh, they designed, I think, a new XR system, I, I mm-hmm. believe was was the thing. And then you're on the scene and you're trying to find the hard drive and you're trying to you know, find the USB stick. And we just teach the students how to document the crime scene. So in my class, the first lab that the students have to do is investigate a crime scene. So setting that up for like 25 to 30 students is a very difficult and annoying thing. And the idea for me was like, can I do this in VR so that it's much cheaper and more cost effective and I don't have to reset it up? And it it worked quite well, I would say. And the paper is available publicly for people that want to read it. And they made it freely available because of COVID-19, because this is something that could help in the education space when for COVID-19. Totally. What, what was your general sentiment, uh, Abe? Did you find it effective or not so effective? So I, it's effective uh, in a sense of teaching concepts. Uh, it's that you know it, it's probably not as effective in terms of it being less tactile. Um, mm-hmm. So so it just 
uh, our results show that they learned pretty much the same thing, um, which is great. But, you know, again, uh, uh, I, I, you know, it, it, I'm a weird person because everything I do is in technology. Uh, uh, not because I'm just weird. I saw you're like, yeah, you're definitely weird. Uh, no, I'm a weird person because, because <laughs> I mean, everything I do is in tech, but I also don't believe in tech. Like, uh, you know, I, I believe in tech, but I don't believe in tech. I think there's a lot of research that's starting to point uh, in too much technology and too much automation is actually decreasing efficiency and it's leading us to become less uh, less efficient as a society. So I think there's going to be a breaking point. And I think PR is great and helps do a lot of great things, but we have to understand where the core uses might be in the future and how we could help people achieve certain things uh, without decreasing efficiency, right? Um, exactly. Uh, and, and and without decreasing learning and without decreasing everything else. You know, technology isn't just about uh, digital and computers. Technology is anything that serves humanity. So maybe there is a form of technology which isn't related directly to um, to computers or making things do things for you, rather. I mean, we know that people learn better if they have a harder time reading. We know that smaller fonts make people concentrate more. So maybe we should be setting ourselves to the test a little bit more unless you know instead of getting people to do getting uh, computers to do things for us uh, all the time i don't know if that's the kind of direction you were going with that but that's kind of what uh resonated to me yeah i mean this entire covid experience has really pushed digitization forward by like 10 years right because people mm. had to adjust very quickly i mean everyone you talk to is like this is such a positive amazing thing and i'm just there sitting down like you're full of crap um, uh, most of the time. I mean, I'm sorry, guys, but that's just how I feel about it. Uh, I mean, I think Zoom is great, and, and you know, it's helped itself. It helps, you know, it helped serve its purpose. Uh, it helped us, you know, sort of digitize some of the things we're doing. But it's it's not it's not the end all be all. And frankly, it is. You know, you talk to students that are in university. They're like, you know, it's just not the same experience. We don't like yeah. it as much. We want to be in the classroom. We want to be face to face. And you know, I think I think there's going to be a breaking point for all of us. And oh. and I think that uh, I think that companies are, you know, the whole idea from working from home. Like, you know, I have kids. I mean, if I was, you know, if I didn't have kids and you know my kids were grown up and I had my home office and no one would bother me, it would be great. But Working from home sucks. I mean, most of the time, some people love it. They're like, I can spin out of bed and I can sit down, look at all the positive aspects. I'm like, yeah, great. But you're not getting the real job done most of the time. And frankly, I people are going to disagree with me and tell me I'm a lot more productive. I'm like, no, you're not. You're just telling yourself that. <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 I just, I don't see that being a world that's going to be so much better for all of us in the future. And I think mm. that, if we continue moving in that direction, I think at some point people are going to be like, we need to revisit everything that we've thought about. The same thing applies. I don't know if, if you guys have seen all of these companies. It was a huge wave for a longest period of time where it's like these startup incubators that allow all of these companies to work together in the same space. And it's kind of something oh, that God. people boasted about. Open offices, <laughs> let's work together. You know, open offices don't work. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Like, if I want to have a conversation with a program manager at the National Science Foundation and, and you know, I need my privacy to be able to do that. Now they're going to tell, well, you have this one room that you can get into. It's like, no, you don't. Like, I don't want to keep moving around, uh, you know, from one space to another in order mm -hmm. for me to to do these things. Or 
something as simple as, you know, like my wife calls me and there's an emergency. Like, I don't want to pick up the phone in the middle of the open office and start talking about family related things and have everyone else around me do that. So, again, I am not like you know, there are the, I, I'm a big technology advocate. But we need to start thinking about where the use cases are that are, that are going to benefit humanity and not take us back 10 years uh, in terms of our, uh, you know, uh, how efficient we can be. Do you think maybe there's um, a period? It seems to me like looking at things that, you know, come out, there's a period when a technology is new, where there's kind of like a honeymoon where everything is good about it and stuff. And then there's a, a period where um, it sort of, it's like you develop some kind of immunity to it as a human society and so then people start to use it with more um not caution is not the word i'm looking for but with a bit more uh, moderation and in the right places i think we've seen this with tvs i remember there was a period where in europe tv had been around for ages so people would watch it but not like the whole time and there were still uh poorer countries who were absolutely obsessed with coming over here and buying tvs and taking it back and it would be like the big thing right so that kind of made me think about that um, do you think there's like a period, like a natural period where populations become obsessed with the new technology and then that tends to balance out over time? Or do you think we really do risk a future where we just become too dependent on it as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that this whole idea of, just think about that for a second, right? Like maybe, you know, buying things online, is t- the, like especially in the United States, is is the thing to do. I mean, malls are closing, uh, you know, supermarkets are probably going to close at some point. Like God knows what's going to happen. Uh, but I'm just not a. I'm. I'm just, I don't. I, I think that th- that that has overall decreased the quality of purchasing, as opposed to increased the quality of purchasing. And I think that it's going to continue to increase our prices forward and move, move price increases forward because people are just. Now, they think with a click of a button, they can do anything that they want. They can buy anything mm-hmm. that they want with a click of a button. And, and, and it's just changing our society. Like now, you know, you can buy a car with a click of a button. I mean, like, you know, that's not a cheap purchase, you know, or, yeah. uh, you know, you know to, to just buy a car. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a skeptical person uh, when it comes to these things. I'm, I, I don't feel that we are taking the right measures in order for us to stop and think about everything that we're doing. I, I actually don't think that that's the case. Um, I think that maybe it'll happen in the future and we can reconfigure and rethink, but that's, that's very difficult to do that when we become addicted, right? Like right. it's very difficult for us to, to, to kind of change our habits when an entire society has become not just, you know, we, we're not just reliant, but also completely addicted. Right. To 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 the step to to being able to order things online constantly to be to ordering food online to, you know, like like okay, the, I, I'm, I'm the biggest skeptical of these companies. I'm sure maybe some of you guys use them. You've heard about the companies where they send you uh, and Kavya might know this. I mean, you know, I love to cook Kavya and I think I've sent you pictures of the food. That I cook, <laughs> right? um, you know, the companies that that send you like packaged items with of course uh, we've got with, all these san franciscans using yeah, all these with, things including myself with, yeah <laughs> yeah with these recipes right like you get a recipe in a box and like you're like okay, now you're gonna cook this thing i'm like are you freaking kidding me <laughs> like 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 thank you seriously <laughs> thank you <laughs> like like this seriously like, acceptable <laughs> like, like, like 
Like, go to the store, look up a recipe, and 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 cook something. You don't need someone to send you everything to your doorstep that is prepackaged, wasting a lot of money and and all of these things to do it. To the point, like. I, I, that just blows my mind. Like, you know, I, I mean, again, I'm from the Middle East. I grew up in a household where my dad was constantly cooking and, and, and things like that. And I learned how to cook. I love, I love cooking. It's kind of my outlet for everything that I do. I know we have some Italian people here. Like I love cooking osobuku. It's one of my favorite things to cook, right? <laughs> nice. Like, right? But I don't want to deliver it in a box for me telling me that, you know, I, I don't know. I just... We, I, I think that's that probably point. very cultural though because it would be... Here it would be completely unacceptable to have recipes sent to you. People would be like yeah. proud what about it, right? What have you done, Abe? In... You have made my life twice as difficult because I already get shit from these guys for cooking pasta. <laughs> <laughs> hey, California. I mean, okay, you're in California. The last time I, I, I gave a presentation, it was actually a VR uh, forensics presentation in California. And uh, I, you know what struck me, guys, is you go to these coffee shops and now there's robots making the coffee for you, right? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Um, why? I mean, the question is why, right? The question is why? Because baristas that live there can't afford the cost of living in that area. So now they have to find another way, right? So it's always about money, right? It's, everything is about money at the end of the day. And and sometimes we have to rethink that. I mean, who doesn't like money? I like money. I'm not going to lie. But, but there's, there's at some level, we have to rethink the things that we're doing. I mean, uh, cybersecurity is a big thing right now. And most places are starting to tell people, you don't need a college degree to get into cybersecurity, Right. Um, mm. You just need to take a couple of like uh, one week courses and now go ahead and start finding a job in cyber and you're going to do great. And you're going to be going to do well. Mm -hmm. And I'm like I'm like the person standing out there making everyone hate me, telling all these companies that you're stupid. I think what you're saying is absolutely wrong. If you want someone to be a really good cybersecurity person, you have to teach them all the fundamentals. You have to understand things from the ground up. They're not going to just, you can't just teach them, of course. Now, if you want to reskill existing workers so you could move them to new things, that's one other, that's one, one problem. Like Google, for example, you know, is really boasting this, like, let's just do this huge online education for tech talent there's a lot of other companies that are doing that and and if you look at it and this is what i told uh, you know this, this is what i keep telling people like it's to their advantage to do that exactly. because if they can get people to get these things and hire them at like ninety thousand dollars a year as opposed to hiring someone else at 120 or 130 thousand dollars a year there's a cost benefit ratio to the organizations that are doing that so i'm a first generation college person i mean you have to understand you know, first person in my family to get a college degree um uh, you know, bachelor's, master's, associate's, PhD, and and any person that you talk to will tell you that has been through a college education that's good is like there's no substitute for that. That's number one, and number two, the other, the, you know, there are some students and kids that didn't have a college education, right? And they've been very successful, uh, and that's true. But that's like one percent of the population, right? It's not like the hundred percent or the ninety-eight or the ninety-six or, you know, it's yeah. it's that really small group of people that have been able to do something with their lives without a college education. And then finally, I'm just, I have to say this because I just have to. Then the argument is Bill Gates doesn't have a college degree, and I'm like, Bill Gates was in Harvard. Right, who is, who is you know, he, he wasn't like, you know, he he was already in Harvard, and he's like, oh, I'm gonna take a chance on this, and he was at the right place at the right time, and 
definitely a smart guy, amazing guy, done amazing things in his career, but you can't like, you can't just, exactly. you know, it, it's not, it's not the same. Anyways. It's not, uh, Abe. No, I mean, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Like I remember when I was a hairstylist and I had to go get, you know, I really just wanted to become cybersecurity officer. I had to get a degree. And that is all what I would do even today, knowing all the certifications full well or whatever. No, Abe is 100% right. There is this misconception, especially the companies using the misconception to you know, manipulate you to think that this is a better education. No, that's a data grab as well as you know, just like a resource grab. But Abe, oh, one thing, not a shocking news, but in cybersecurity and in IT in general, it's a white male dominating field. First of all, have you ever felt marginalized? And before I even go there, I must compliment and say, what a remarkable journey as a person who is the first one to go to college in his family. Because, you know, I'm not the first to go to college, but I'm first to go this far. So I really relate and honor you as a person, as a researcher, as all the things that you've done. It's truly remarkable. And then on that same note, I, I wonder if you've ever felt marginalized in some way in the domain. And do you think this perception can be a barrier for women and minorities to even enter the industry? I mean, so, so, so I'm kind of a, so, so here, here's the thing. I mean, you know, Kavya, that I do a lot of work in terms of working with underrepresented groups and minorities. And, exactly. you know, I have the Gen Cyber Camp, which was featured in Time for Kids. I have, you know, 20, uh, I've increased, I've helped increase, not just with me, like me and Liberty Page and the people I work with at the university. I mean, you know, it, it's really been my push, but they were like, yes, we want to do this, right? And it's, it's, so now our program all of a sudden in the cybersecurity program has over 21% females. 33, four years ago, it was like 0%, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, so, so we've increased that, that amount significantly. In terms of me being fe- fe- feeling marginalized, so I'm a kind of a unique person because, you know, first, first of all, let, let's understand something. Uh, a person from the Middle East in the United States for whatever reason, is considered white, right? Like for, for whatever reason, right? Uh, right? Like this, this is that Biden is trying to change that. The new administration is trying to change that because they realize that you know you're not really just you know a Caucasian person, right? Like, but so so, so it is that that's kind of the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing is most people when I talk to them or meet them or, or things like that. They, they assume who I am. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if they find out I'm Arabic, they assume I'm Muslim. If I find if they find out I'm Jordanian uh, or, or if they find out my name is Abe, they assume that I'm Jewish. Uh, if they see my last name, Bajili, many times they think I'm Italian. When I go to a, a Mexican <laughs> restaurant, they start speaking to me in Spanish. Uh, so so I don't know where I fit in into the mold. So, so for me as Abe, I, I try to leverage every situation I can in order for me, for people to kind of identify with me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if they identify with me, that's all that matters to me. And I just move forward in order for us to do the business that we have to do and to kind of continue doing the things. Now, I will say when I was in college, many students were getting internships uh, in our digital forensics uh, laboratory. And I kept trying to get the internship, uh, which was unpaid even, to work with uh, with a certain law enforcement entity there. And it wasn't like federal level or anything like that. And finally, I remember going into my professor's office. I'm like, 
why am I not getting this internship? Is it because I'm Arabic? And he's like, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> yes. You know, so, oh, gosh. No, I, so, so that was kind of, a, uh, that was kind of a, a, you know, a thing to think about. The other thing is like, I'm always smart in the way I approach things. Like when I was a college student traveling from Jordan to the United States, I always travel through like the Chicago airport and in the Chicago airport, you would have, you know, the people at the immigration, uh, you know, the, the, you know, you'd, you'd see different kinds of people. You see like maybe an Arabic person or an Indian person, and then there's a white person, <laughs> you know, I'd be the person but like, I'll be on the lookout, like who's an international person standing in the immigration office so that I can choose that person to stand in line for. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, you're good. <laughs> you know, they, they, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I don't know. I, I haven't, yeah, I mean, I haven't felt marginalized against as much as others, probably because of the fact that um, I just don't fit any specific mold, right? And I, I try to be free from all uh, from all like attachments to to uh, to a specific culture or specific religion. Or spe- I'm just very free in in the way I act and the way I do things. Um, it doesn't mean that that's for everyone, obviously, but I have been marginalized in certain areas. Like I told you, like, oh, you're not getting this internship, even though it's unpaid because you're Arabic. Right. <laughs> so uh, so just wanted to put that out there. Uh, but it is important for us to change these things uh, specifically. You know, I, I mostly care currently about women in cybersecurity. I have two daughters, as you know, Kavya, it's something I'm very passionate about. And I do everything in my power to make a change. At some point, there was 70% of my research lab were all females. Um, yeah. and, and I'm hoping I could continue to, to change that. Even though things got really tough, Abe, thank you that you never actually stopped supporting us, even if it was like in the background oftentimes. And so I really appreciate that. And I, and I encourage people to look at Gen Cyber Camp and all the activities that you do to uplift women. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Abe. Thank you so much for coming today. It was really good for me to talk to you as well because you, I'm, you know, I've heard a lot about you. So it was great to finally actually get to hear your voice and uh, see your avatar. <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully, we get we'll get to chat more in the future. Thank you, guys. This was my pleasure. Have a good day. Bye bye. I can't wait for the next researches that Abe and his team are going to conduct. I'm sure that the next season will happen again. Meanwhile, you can check out our stories, episodes, and guests on readyhacker1.com, on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and all on, the, on all the main podcast platforms. If you like what we do, search for our episodes on YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Singularity Watch. For now, happy journeys to all of you.